It's now my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Phil, Philip Duffy. Philip is President and Executive Director of the Woodwell Climate Research Centre, formerly the Woods Hole Research Centre. Prior to joining Woodwell, Dr. Duffy served as a Senior Policy Analyst in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and as a Senior Advisor in the White House National Science and Technology Council under President Obama. In these roles, he was involved in international climate negotiations, domestic and international climate policy and coordination of US global change research. This session will examine research from Woodwell Climate Research and Centre and assess the near-term physical and socio-economic risks associated with climate change and demonstrates a model for embedding the insights of climate science into both public and private sector decision-making. We are certainly privileged to have Dr. Philip Duffy with us today. Hello there, Philip. Well, good morning and thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Um, so it, it's, it's my honor to have the opportunity to talk to you a bit about uh, some of the uh, immediate and near-term physical risks uh, from climate change. Uh, and what I want to do before I, I turn to that, I would like to just spend a moment uh, and, and say a couple words about the institution I lead, uh, Woodwell Climate Research Center. Uh, so we were formed uh, in 1985 uh, as uh, the Woods Hole Research Center with a mission which was uh, unique then and remains very unusual, and that is that we're a scientific research organization, yes, uh, but our goal is societal benefit, and our our approach to impact is to work with uh, policymakers and decision makers and give them the science they need uh, to inform decisions uh, that they come across in the work uh, that they do. Um, and uh, these are so our vehicle for achieving societal benefit is through partnerships, uh, and these are some of the partners we work with. Uh, and I won't go through all of them, but I'll just say we work with some of the poorest people in the world, some of the richest people in the world. Uh, we work with large conservation organizations, indigenous groups, governments at all levels. And as you see uh, towards the top of this slide, we work also uh, with uh, leaders in uh, the world of business uh, and finance. So let me turn now to uh, let me turn now to. Uh, just showing you that some of the impacts of climate change are material uh, right now. Uh, and I'll start uh, close to home uh, for some of you, and this is Australia. And as you know, we had a, a devastating uh, wildfire season last year in Australia. Uh, and the inset here shows, illustrates the role of climate change uh, in that fire season, and it, and what's what I'm seeing, what I'm showing you here is each year in the last century uh, is represented by a dot, uh, and the horizontal axis is temperature, and the vertical axis is is wetness precipitation, and you can see the recent uh, the recent years, which are shown in yellow uh, and red, uh, are all over on the right side of the graph, meaning that they're, they're warmer than the previous years. And also, I think you can see that uh, in recent decades, we've experienced greater than normal or greater than previous hydrologic variability, meaning more extreme wet years uh, and more extreme dry years. And, and 2019 is in the lower right there, meaning that 2019 was an extremely wet 
uh, an extremely dry year. And, and the takeaway from this is that what happened last year uh, in Australia was partly a combination of, a, of climate trends and partly uh, an unusually hot uh, and dry year. I'm speaking to you uh, this morning from California, in fact, in a very high fire risk zone. This shows trends in area burned by fire here in California. 2020 is shown in red on the right, literally uh, literally off the charts. Uh, but even though it was an extreme year, you can see from this that it was not a one-off, but rather a continuation of a trend of what looks almost like uh, exponential growth uh, in fire activity here. Uh, and similarly, this is uh, illustrating the 2020 hurricane season. These are storm tracks in the North Atlantic. You may know that we experienced a record number of named storms uh, in the North Atlantic last year. Uh, and here again, we see that this is part of a longer term trend. And here I'm showing you over decades, <coughs> excuse me, uh, increases in number of named storms, number of hurricanes, and number uh, of, of major hurricanes. And finally, just one more example of uh, climate risks which are happening now, and this is, this is high tide flooding, this is uh, frequency of high tide flooding in stations, weather stations across the coast of the U.S. Again, you can see what seems to be essentially uh, an exponential increase. So, so these risks are already uh, increasing. Uh, they're already material. Uh, what I want to do now is just illustrate how we expect these risks to evolve, uh, some of these risks to evolve in coming decades. So I'll, I'll turn back uh, to Australia. And what I have here is a map showing uh, projected increases in fire risk for, uh, the, well, the next 30 years compared to uh, the last 30 years of the 20th century, you can see we're projecting uh, large increases in number of high fire risk days or really weeks uh, in mostly the eastern part of the country, uh, which is the most populous part of the country. Um, we've also shown here, if you can see it, um, the vegetation uh, load or, or, veg or fuel load, um, which is illustrated here as topography. You can see in many cases the areas which are heavily vegetated coincide with the areas of rapidly increasing fire risk. So that means a lot of risk uh, for, for humans and societal systems. Uh, this is a map of projected drought uh, in the Mediterranean. This is comparing the decade of the 2030s to uh, the mid to late uh, 20th century. And what I'm showing here is projected additional months of drought uh, per decade. And what's going on here is a combination of increasing warmth and also decreasing precipitation. And I want to just call your attention to the numbers here. The, the darkest shades, we're projecting an additional 60 months of drought per decade. Well, a decade is only 120 months. So that means we're projecting that these darkest shaded areas will be in severe drought more often uh, than not. And, and this has enormous implications, I think, for agriculture, for fire risk, for water scarcity, and potentially also as a driver of large-scale human migration. <clears throat> I want to turn now to some of the, looking at some of the socioeconomic consequences of 
physical risks. And this is showing uh, heat, uh, a measure of extreme heat. You can see this is South Asia. We, we have two maps. One is the mid to late 20th century. The, the map on the right is uh, the middle of or the decade of uh, the 2040s. And I'm showing number of days where uh, the so-called uh, heat index uh, is, in, in, is in what we call the danger zone. The heat index is a measure of temperature and humidity, uh, which is a measure of uh, relevant to extreme heat stress in, in humans. And, and again, you can see we're projecting enormous increases in uh, frequencies of extreme heat. If you can't read the scale, we're showing that in much of this region, by the middle of the century, uh, this, the heat index will be in the danger zone more often than not, more than 180 days per year. Well, this has obvious socioeconomic implications, and this is one of them. This is from some work done by McKinsey and Company, which we, uh, which we provided the science for, and this is looking at um, outdoor labor and share of outdoor labor, uh, which will be lost because uh, of uh, extreme heat. And this is significant in this part of the world because it's, a, it's an emerging economy. A lot of their economic activity is, in fact, outdoors in the form of, for example, construction uh, or agriculture. This is a bit busy, but uh, it's, it's illustrating uh, an important concept, which is that uh, as the planet warms, we expect more crop failures. And so what we've looked at here is for four global commodities, we looked at the, the probability decade by decade of uh, a global crop failure defined as a 10% a, a uh, drop uh, in yield compared to recent averages. And as the planet warms again, these frequencies uh, increase quite dramatically. And there's two tables here because we've made different assumptions about so-called CO2 fertilization. The message is the same. Uh, as the planet warms, probability of global crop yields and food scarcity uh, increase quite dramatically. Um, so this work and more uh, is encapsulated in a number of uh, reports released by McKinsey and Company, uh, which uh, we have contributed to uh, over uh, the last uh, the last year or two. And, and I'm showing, if, if you can see, I'm showing uh, the covers of uh, three reports here. My, I don't, I'm not sure if that slide has advanced, but again, we've worked working with McKinsey and Company. We've looked at uh, some of the socioeconomic consequences of uh, these increases uh, in physical risk. Um, and before I close, I want to mention one longer term risk, and that is that has to do with permafrost. And this is now a map of where well, you're looking down at the North Pole, and this, the purple areas are show areas of permafrost. Uh, and, and well, I'll just say permafrost may not be something you think about every day, but it's something that is going to have a major impact on light. Of, on life here on Earth. And this is permanently frozen ground, uh, which is now thawing uh, as uh, the Earth warms and as the Arctic warms, and the Arctic is warming two to three times faster than the rest of the planet. Uh, and what happens when permafrost thaws is it emits greenhouse gases. It emits carbon dioxide and it emits methane. And we've made some of the first measurements of uh, emissions of these greenhouse gases from thawing Permafrost, and what's particularly worrisome about this is that as um, it, it's a self-reinforcing cycle. In other words, as the planet warms, permafrost thaws and releases more greenhouse gases, uh, and that causes more warming and so forth. And so the risk 
of the, there's a risk that we essentially lose control of our planetary destiny. Uh, that even after humans stop emitting greenhouse gases, that warming uh, would continue. And we don't know uh, we don't know the probability of that happening, but it's a risk, and it's one that the the, the global climate policy community really hasn't come to grips with. Um, and and and. And another key message, and this is the final thought I'll leave you with, is that uh, even after humans stop emitting greenhouse gases, uh, the, the global temperature and the, and the impacts I'm showing you don't get better. Uh, they only stop getting worse. And what I'm showing here is uh, just look, if you look at the bottom graph, this is showing what happens if we were to instantly stop, humanity were to instantly stop. Uh, emitting greenhouse gases, and you can see and th that the, the planet doesn't cool significantly for hundreds of years, okay? So what this is saying is that climate change is essentially irreversible uh, on human timescales, and this really drives uh, the urgency of, of addressing climate change. The dashed line there represents a possible consequence of thawing permafrost, which wasn't considered in these models, and as I said, thawing permafrost and other so-called biotic feedbacks raise the possibility that even after humans stop emitting greenhouse gases, that warming will continue. Um, so uh, a, a few points to leave you with. Um, the, the impacts of climate change already today uh, are economically uh, material. Uh, they will clearly uh, continue to worsen uh, as the planet continues to warm. Um, when we do stop uh, emitting greenhouse gases, uh, these risks won't get better. Uh, they merely stop. They merely stop getting worse. Um, and in, in my mind, the, the biggest risk that we face is that, for some of the reasons I've shown you, extreme heat, water scarcity, food scarcity, parts of the world uh, will become difficult to inhabit. Uh, and I think one of the risk from that that concerns me more than anything else is the potential for large-scale migration uh, and, and political instability uh, and, and societal disruption. So on that cheerful note, I would be happy. Uh, I'd be happy to take any questions. Well, thank you, uh, Philip. And and if, in case you weren't uh, with me at the opening, uh, just to remind you that this is a global audience of 43 countries that we're talking to right now. 304 institutional investors have signed on for today's session, representing uh, 12.7 trillion US dollars. So certainly a very influential group in which if we can uh, have them mobilise uh, in helping solve this problem. And certainly um, an opportunity is in front of all of us also. I've got some specific questions for you and we'll also take questions from the audience. Uh, please, if you've got a question, send that through and it'll come through on my screen. Just before I go to my questions that are specific to the investment community, Philip, uh, you seem to know a little bit about what you're talking about here. Among, among other things, you have a bachelor's degree from Harvard in astrophysics. You also have a PhD in applied physics from Stanford. Uh, you must have one of the most depressing lives of anyone. I mean, have you been banging on about this for 30 and 40 years, wondering, is it making any difference? When will people start listening? Well, that's right. And, and what's What's and that, but what it has really changed in the last just couple of years and 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 I, I think what's different is is some of what I showed you at the beginning, which is that 
the manifestations and the impacts of climate change are so obvious now um, that uh, people are getting it that this is, as I said, a material risk, a risk, a risk that that we really it's a it's an immediate risk uh, and one that we need to factor into economic decision making. So you're you're uh, you do feel that there is still time to to make material change. We haven't missed the train. It's we're we're not heading to almost certain disaster on this measure. Well, that's an important point, and, and it's always true uh, that action helps. Uh, there's, there's really no such thing as it being too late. Uh, it, it, in other words, if we take strong action now, uh, our, our future gets better, uh, and negative consequences at, at a minimum uh, get pushed further off into the future, which is, is certainly um, be well, better than nothing. Uh, you know, that said, uh, it's true that the longer we wait, uh, the narrower the set of future worlds becomes, and specifically, the, the more livable futures become less and less, less and less likely. Do you see it as a step change that we now have a Biden administration? You work directly for President Obama. We've had four uh, incredible years with President Trump. What do you see uh, in terms of uh, Biden's policies and how that might change the uh, the narrative and the reality going forward? Well, I, it, it, briefly, I think in the, the scale of ambition and the scope of ambition that his administration has for climate change is far beyond anything uh, we've ever seen, including under uh, President Obama, who, as you pointed out, I, I, uh, I helped uh, several years ago. Uh, and, and I think it's incredibly important. And, and perhaps the most important aspect of it is the resumption of uh, international leadership, and, uh, as well as, as, well as uh, action domestically here. And obviously, the two things go together. I mean, you have one has no moral authority to act as an international leader without making meaningful commitments uh, at home. And, and this administration is, is, is doing both things. I'd like to go uh, to a question from the audience. Uh, John Ad Adler, thank you for your question. He's both the chair and the chief pension investment advisor and director of the New York City Employees Retirement System, uh, which, uh, which runs uh, 76.5 billion US dollars. The question is, is it possible that future climate capture technologies could reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere and reduce the temperature in the future, or is that simply a pipe dream? It's certainly possible, uh, and it, it's, it's something we absolutely have to do uh, in order to have in any hope of a reasonable future. We have to remove an enormous amount of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So, so stopping the emissions is only, is only part of what we need to do. Uh, the, the technological CO2 removal approaches right now are very expensive. Uh, they're also very, very energy intensive. And so if you, if you get that energy from fossil fuels, then the whole thing doesn't really help. Uh, so we need to get much better at, at those technological uh, CO2 removal methods. I should also mention so-called natural climate solutions, which refers to uh, approaches for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through essentially land management, things like reforestation, things like restoring carbon to agricultural soils, uh, restoring wetlands and so forth. And we've done work at Woodwell showing the potential for carbon removal from those sorts of approaches is very, very significant. 
we think it won't get you all the way there, but on the other hand, it's something that one can do right now. Uh, and also, those approaches are relatively, uh, relatively inexpensive. And there's a lot. There's a great growing interest in those, and, and particularly in um, agricultural methods uh, which restore carbon to soils, and also reforestation. Thanks, Philip. Can we move to uh, your relationship that you uh, your working relationship now with two very famous uh, pension plans, both Calpers in California and Ontario Teachers? Can you tell me a little bit more about how you work with them? How do they incorporate your work into their analysis, and how does that translate into something meaningful in their decision making? Sure. So, and and that work. Uh, also involves Wellington Management, uh, which is, well, as you know, a, a leading uh, asset management firm. So, the, you know, I will say that, well, the, in some sense, what we're doing is we're helping them to use physical climate risk as a lens through which to evaluate potential investments. Uh, and at, certainly at the time we started to do this work with them, which was two or three years ago, I think this was something quite new, uh, meaning that this was not uh, this was not something that investors were, physical climate risk was not something that investors were, were used to thinking about uh, when they assess uh, where to allocate uh, capital. And so for them, it's a tool to help them make um, better investments uh, and, and essentially uh, it's a risk that uh, they think, and I think they're right, is not reflected in the, in the price uh, of these assets. Um, and from our perspective, as a nonprofit, which is seeking uh, to move society forward in addressing climate change, we think it's very, very useful uh, for investors to be thinking about uh, near-term climate risks. And, and our, our hope and expectation is that as these investors understand the materiality of these risks, that they will act more broadly uh, to help address them. And in fact, we're starting to see that happening, and it's very rewarding. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, question in regards to the geographical significance of environmental disasters. Would you be advising, advise, advising investors uh, to have a geographical lens on their investments when it comes to the, in, the environment and where they invest. And perhaps I'll actually, I'll, I'll add to that question as well, um, give the, the flip side, a question that's come from Patrick, the Deputy Chief Investment Officer uh, in Switzerland of Publica. Uh, it runs $51 billion. Are there regions or countries that will benefit from global warming in the long term from an investment perspective? Um, probably well, in the long, long term, I think we all lose. Uh, and in the long, long term, I think we all lose because of the concern I have about things like mass migration leading to political instability, uh, societal disruption, and so forth. Uh, in the shorter term, yes, there are some winners and parts of Russia, for example, will become uh, suitable uh, for agriculture, parts of Canada. Uh, will become suitable for agriculture or more so uh, than they are now. And that, you know, that creates a challenge in terms of uh, summoning international cooperation to address the problem if some folks feel like this is going to be beneficial to them in the short term. 
One of those one of those countries might well be uh, where the where the questioner has come from, which is Switzerland, I guess, which is uh, landlocked, very uh, very high altitude, uh, very wet, and um, and very rich. Uh, look, the other question uh, was was whether, in fact, there's uh, uh, investors should be bringing a geographical lens uh, to to future environmental disasters, and therefore where they invest and where they don't. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's a lot of what this work is about, and that's why you know what I showed you is in, in map form, uh, because these risks are th these risks are very very highly variable across. Uh, across geographies, and 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 yes, and and I think it's fair to say that geography or is not uh, not again a lens through which investors are used to uh, evaluating investments, but it's, it is actually in fact very important. Certainly, countries that are highly populous, e.g., uh, uh, Bangladesh, over 150 million people, uh, but uh, the highest point something like three meters above sea level. So clearly, uh, mass migration from that in, that entire country, in fact, could uh, at some point in our lifetimes need to vacate and move elsewhere. Correct. Correct. And that's not the only example. So let's look at a related question, which is a growing theme of inequity that emerges from this analysis. What types of actions and strategies are you hoping to see from this work with regard to inequity? Well, no, that's that's a great question. And, and you know, there's inequity on all levels, community levels and international levels. And as you mentioned, I was I helped a little bit in international climate negotiations at one point, And that has been a theme uh, forever in the international climate negotiations, which is that uh, essentially the richer countries have contributed, and it's true, have contributed more to the problem of climate change uh, than, and the poorer countries uh, who have contributed the least uh, have uh, suffered uh, the greatest consequences. I mean, what I would say about that is it's sort of like coronavirus, which is that uh, if we, it's in the interest of the richer countries to help the poorer countries manage this problem for a number of reasons, but one of which is that the emerging economies will be the biggest or are the biggest potential source of greenhouse gas emissions. As those economies grow, as those populations grow, the potential for greenhouse gas emissions from those countries is enormous. And if they develop those economies using fossil fuels, then that's a big problem for all of us. So it really is in our own interest to help them uh, develop their economies with low carbon. And it's also in our own interest to help them cope with these climate change for reasons we've already discussed, which is potential for mass migration and so forth. We're almost out of time, but we'll go to a couple of last questions, please, Phil. Um, uh, question question is, uh, in, the, in, the, in its report last month, the European Environmental Bureau urged for a huge reduction in consumption rather than an increased green economic growth. How can investors commit to providing solutions to climate change when these will require almost certainly a reduction in wealth creation? Well, that, that, look, that's a hard one. And uh, my, my own view is that asking people to do with less uh, isn't a, isn't a winning message, uh, and it's not not a great way to get folks on your side. And I I I, I do think that we should focus on uh, continuing to increase wealth, but doing so in a way uh, that's less detrimental uh, to the climate through through lower carbon solutions. Okay, thank you. Um, 
What are the most impactful things that investors can do to move the needle on climate change? Engaging with companies, engaging with governments, investing in clean technologies are three examples. Well, I think all of those uh, are important. And one of the reasons we work with investors rather than working directly with individual companies, we meaning Woodwell Climate Research Center, is precisely because the investors have the ability to influence uh, the companies they invest in so that they're, we, we feel like we get high leverage from working with investors. And, and influencing governments, yes, very important. Uh, the financial industry and the, the business sector generally has a very strong political voice should they decide uh, to use it. And I, and I hope that by, by thinking about climate risks and, and particularly near-term climate risks that this motivates uh, folks uh, in this world uh, to use their political voices. So, Dr. Phil Duffy, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for joining our audiences around the world, especially at the very inconvenient hour of 6.40 a.m. where you are in California right now. Um, you've got, uh, you've got uh, fires to keep safe from there. You've got a virus still uh, ravaging your state. Please stay safe. And thanks again for your time and information today. All the best. Well, thanks for having me.